Uh, ladies and gentlemen, this is Charlie McTee of 210 East Davis Street, McKinney, Texas. The old alchemy that uh, goes around to the state conventions, big meetings and conferences, records talks, comes home, like covers and mails out, well, to several foreign countries and all over the United States. Now, I'm coming here to tell you, all you listening, that uh, Alcoholics Anonymous does not realize uh, how much good Al-Anon is doing. I, that is what I mean. The majority of them don't realize it's a, it's the greatest thing that ever has come along to boost Alcoholics Anonymous, and more people should go out and attend the meetings. And those of you that have uh, <clears throat> mates that are you think have a problem, you should go to meetings and and uh, and learn something about it, and and uh, then you could uh, be better prepared to take the message home with you, and uh, whether it be man or wife, and let them hear the truth. And uh, you'd be more equipped by the word of mouth to air to, to explain the AA program. So I am uh, uh, preparing this tape for Mrs. Frank uh, C. over in Dallas, Texas, and the terror group especially. And, and I hope you enjoy this. I'm, I don't know. I think this, t this speaker I'm going to put on is Bill Peterson. I just don't recall right now where he's from. I taped this in Tulsa, Oklahoma in 1965. It's uh, quite comical. It may seem a little bit uh, <laughs> out of line for some of you, but, you know, we we have to have this uh, uh, quite a bit of levity in AA and also Al-Anon, so I hope you enjoy this talk. Our Father, we thank you for Alcoholics Anonymous and for Al-Anon. We thank you for doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. We thank you for the beauty of this luncheon, for the spontaneity, the laughter, the pathos, and the tears of a thing called an Alcoholics Anonymous Conference. Uh, in the name of the carpenter who told us and taught us about love, we pray this. Amen. You know, uh, when I decided to surrender to Al-Anon, it was with much reluctance because I had cultivated a long-standing superior attitude. And believe me, ladies and gentlemen, it is difficult to surrender, and I am giving up slowly. But as the wonderful Alanons and AAs here in Tulsa and around the state that I've had the pleasure to associate with, this is by far the finest group of people that I've ever had the privilege of associating with. I've had the wonderful opportunity of playing sports, of participating in various professional and charitable groups and fraternal groups, but there's no comparison. And I'm glad that I'm surrendering. And it took a while, but I am qualified, believe me, to say that I am an Al-Anon, and I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to be part of the program, and I hope and pray to God that I never get back in the same thinking that I was in before I came in the program. But it's wonderful, and I do miss those days when I used to walk in the front door 
and my wife told me to shed immediately because she had to do another washing and she had to do another ironing because that's when she did her drinking. We were the cleanest, the most dedicated, cleanest couple in town because, and to show you how crazy I was, I did shed and she did put them in the washer and she did iron. So you don't think that Al-Anons have trouble in their thinking. We do. But she ironed day and night, folks. Because the, the booze was close by. I took that iron down at least every week or every month to get repaired, and I couldn't figure out why she was dropping it. But I was trying to teach her how to drink, and I didn't succeed. And I became, after, I'm one of the fellows and type of person like most Al-Anons, we ride on the wagon. We get on the bandwagon. She had to come into AA before I came into Al-Anon. And I think it had been a long time. If, it, if she would have been waiting for me to come into Al-Anon first, because I thought it was an auxiliary. I thought it was a women's organization. And as I've told my story before, I went for my friends and clients. That's why I came to Al-Anon, because I didn't have any problems. But I do, and I've recognized them, and I'm trying to work the program. And for you people that are here that have not had an occasion to know much about Al-Anon or would be eligible, to be a member of Al-Anon, we certainly encourage you to look into it. If you don't have a group, as the little blue marker that's on your table says, it asks the question, does your town have an Al-Anon? Certainly, if it doesn't, try to give some consideration because there's some suffering spouses, family members, children, parents of AAs that are living in your community. Without taking any more time from our two wonderful speakers, who have come here after much study and thought as to where they were going to locate their home in Springfield, Missouri, because prior to that time they spent many years in the military. They've traveled the world. And in talking with our speakers, Bob and Lou, they told me they gave very careful thought to locating in Springfield. And I can tell you honestly that one of the most important reasons that they located in Springfield was not only because of the geographical location, the wonderful climate, and the people that live in that part of Missouri, but they located in town. They wanted to get away. They wanted to be out where most people have been in the military would like to be when they think about retirement. And I can say that I was there, so I know you like to get out away from things. But the main consideration they gave was we want to be close to where we can go to meetings. And they are in Springfield. And it's our pleasure to have them here in Tulsa. And at this time, I would like to introduce the first speaker of this team. And as this has been billed and played in the announcing this luncheon and these speakers, it'll be up to you to guess who is who. But I'm going to introduce the first part of this fine team, Bob P. Bob? One moment, please. I'm going to break Bob's anonymity. His full name is Bob Peterson, P-E-T-E-R-S-O-N, and Lou, his good wife. And uh, they are from Springville, Missouri. Okay, here's Bob. Bob is retired from military service. It seems sad that uh, the laughter that we had been hearing ten minutes ago now has to stop to listen to this. I have been legally married to Lou 
for two weeks and thirty years. <laughs> we met in Corpus Christi, where we both were teaching school in 1935. I lived in a house with about a half dozen other men teachers to our living room on occasion during the week and every weekend would come several women teachers who enjoyed the, the male companionship, the good music, the good beer and wine that we served, and one of those women was Lou. After one of those convivial periods, she informed me she lived very near, had an apartment on that same block, and that I could walk her home. We, uh, I offered her my arm, we left, wavered toward the door, and down the steps, and uh, along the sidewalk in the direction she had indicated. In just a moment, she looked at me and said, You're passionate. <laughs> Not being at all sure that I had interpreted her soft, sullen voice correctly, I said nothing. We continued to walk. In just a moment, she looked at me again. She said, you're passionate. There was a warm gulf breeze carrying the fragrance of a million flowers, and all in the world I could think of to say was, did you ever smell such beautiful flowers? <laughs> we reached the end of the block. And I remember she said she lived on that block. I said, just where do you live? And she turned to me and she said, that's what I was trying to tell you back there. You're passing it. <laughs> I visited that apartment many times during those 18 months of courtship and learned a lot of things about Lou. On occasion, we would enjoy a mixed drink when we couldn't think of anything else to do. A pint of four roses would last us six or eight weeks. But it was extremely important to me at that time to know that my future wife did not object to my taking a drink of alcohol. My name is Bob, and I identify myself with Al-Anon. Al-Anon is, is composed of friends and relatives of alcoholics. I am both a friend and a relative of an alcoholic. I don't think it is out of place for a man to be a friend with his wife, do you? And I'm proud that I am associated with Al-Anon, and my purpose, if I can, is to tell you why an old man such as I 
joined Al-Anon and intends to practice what Al-Anon teaches for as long as God lets me live on earth. I'm an old man now. I uh, think I might qualify under one of the criteria that Harold mentioned last night. I do have the white hair. <laughs> I'm very forgetful. I have to use notes because I forget what I want to say. I'm a little like that senile old man who frankly admitted that he was getting old. He, His memory was being lost. He said, uh, now when I catch a woman, I forget why I chased her. <laughs> there is a parallel, I think, a great deal in what Jerry just told you in our lives. I was a supercilious, superior type of person, too. I believed in the hard life, the hard knocks. I was uh, brought up that way. If I ever forgot for a moment that uh, life should be any different, my dad knocked it back into me. It was a very strict home. I think nature also played a part in that early life, as did Oklahoma. I noticed that the young men in our town, when I was about 14 or 15, left during that period of time when plants make an adjustment with nature, the cotton plant, having grown to this point and having been chopped, uh, offered a small period of time for the men, the young men, to do something else before cotton picking began. They went to Oklahoma to work in the wheat fields to make a few dollars and on to Kansas and on further north so that they could come back and go to college. In 1923 and 24, college was the thing that I wanted more than anything else and didn't seem to ever be able to accumulate enough funds to go. But uh, when I reached that advanced age of about 15, I too tried that wheat field deal but instead of <clears throat> riding, hitching a ride on the highways or riding the rods, I rode the cushions all the way to Pratt, Kansas and spent the entire summer on the City View farm working on the wheat fields and rode the cushions back and wound up with a total profit of that expedition of $4. <laughs> I had to wander list. I couldn't stay in my little town in the middle of Texas and do nothing, and there wasn't much to do. I tried one other time to make my fortune, and this time it was Oklahoma City. I think it was the hottest summer that you have ever had. Uh, another boy and I hitchhiked this time. We had to. And we put up in a cheap room in Oklahoma City, answered an ad of a company that wanted salesmen. I paid $5 for a real silk hosiery kit, and read the pamphlet explaining how to be a salesman from door to door, was assigned my area in a section of Oklahoma City, and some of you people may be here. 
I called on 75 homes in two days and did not make one single sale or even get close to it. I tried to turn in my kit. They didn't want it. <laughs> and they did not give me back my $5. But that wasn't so bad. I thought I could surely take these hose and socks and give them to my sisters and my brother and maybe my parents until I realized that there was only one sock of each pair. <laughs> I think I'm telling you all these mundane things just to show you that I am a child of the Depression. I did manage to go to school a bit, taught school for nine years and spent nearly 33 years in the Army and have been retired nearly five years. Now, if you're beginning to add my age, you're going to miss it by about 10 years. The depression that I spoke of was an economic one. It was not the depression that our Al-Anon literature discusses philosophically. If anything, in the early years of my life, the very way I began or lived those early days made me self-confident and gave me a challenge of something that I wanted to reach. <clears throat> I think it also made me selfish and self-centered. I wanted everyone with whom I came in contact to be exactly as I was. I wanted them to fashion their lives after a mold that I had conceived. Everything was perfection. There was only one way to do anything, and that was the way I was trying to do it. I was a very difficult person to live with, you can well imagine. And as old as I am, chronologically, I'm real young in Al-Anon, but support and agree with everything that Jerry has said and that the rest of you know. Our program for us is as necessary as your program is for you. About seven years after Lou came into AA, I retired and started going to open meetings with her much more regularly than I had before. I supported her efforts in seeking this new way of life from the very first. I liked the program. I liked everything I saw in it, and the people that I saw in it, and I liked the literature. And now and then I'd hear people at these open meetings say, I wish we had an Al-Anon group here. I had just barely heard of it and knew nothing of it. But I was curious, and I ordered some literature from headquarters and read it, and it was fascinating to know that this simple, beautiful program that the AAs have is also ours. An Al-Anon group was started about that same time, and I started going regularly, and have found that it contains an answer to a lot of the things that I thought I had quit looking for. I really was not searching for a new way of life. I was reasonably content. I had accomplished, achieved most of the major goals of my life. I wasn't mad at anybody. I wasn't angry with myself. We had a happiness. We allowed ourselves in the family, allowed each other to be individuals, which to us became more and more important. 
But something did happen to me in Al-Anon. As a matter of fact, I was instrumental in starting that first group. I had intended only to get it started and run it taut, like the ship. <laughs> the way I felt it should be, the way the book said or suggested we should have our Al-Anon group, the warnings that were given of things to avoid were so simple and easy to read and understand, and I liked them. I could understand them. I knew that you had to cast off some of these things and take on some of the other things. It was plain. I wanted to get that thing running and then start going fishing and do the other things that I planned to do while I was retired over there in Springfield. It didn't turn out that way. It, it, just, it just never does, I suppose. Instead of retiring to a house to watch the rest of the world go by, I learned how to become a friend of man. And I like it. It's as important to me to really join the human race now that I have quit living with the human race as it is for you to find AA. I began to realize that I had not talked with God since I was a young man. I found now that about the only comment that I need make to him in all seriousness is, thank you, God. I rarely have anything to ask him now. The whole world, the blessed world, in this room, and everything it implies. You know how it is when you're working in your yard or at your job, if time permits for you to have contemplations, thoughts will come to you, come to you if you're alone, and you will review things of the past, and you will take a position, and you will have a feeling, either for or against something, you will approve or disapprove. I do that in my yard. And sometimes if I let my feelings about politics or this or that have sway, uh, I catch myself uh, feeling not good. I find it easy now, through Al-Anon, to think differently. And when I have these periods in my yard or wherever I am, it always winds up with a satisfied feeling that we've heard mentioned here in this convention. And I have only one comment, always. And I can say it happily and easily. Thank you, God. For once I tried to change the whole world, at least as much of it as I could reach, I now am willing to let it live. I learned it in Al-Anon. Lou and I take great delight in doing things together we always have. But now, when there's an election, we live only about three or four blocks from the voting booth. We take great delight in going down and voting. There were so many years we could not do that. We were not at home. Not because of any alcoholic effects, but because we were out of the country, perhaps. Now we vote on everything and enjoy it. We don't always win, but we vote. We'll vote on dog catcher, our president. We'll vote for a bond election, whether or not to extend the runways at the municipal airport, anything. It's a, it's a little thing. We heard discussed this morning the little things, the important, the powerful, the meaningful little things when Jim talked about his family. 
At Al-Anon, I learned there's no pretension required of me. And I can't help but think of the Smith family, Mr. Smith, Mrs. Smith, and little ten-year-old son called Christy Smith. They came into a lot of money, inherited a fortune, and they changed their entire way of life. They uh, bought new furniture, a new car, bought a new house in a better section of town. They joined the club. They changed their name from Smith to S-M-Y-T-H-E, Smythe. There was Mr. Smythe and Mrs. Smythe, and little Christy became Christy. <laughs> they joined a new church, a big church, the biggest in town. And one Sunday as they were coming out of the church, the minister was at the door greeting the people. Mr. Smythe and Mrs. Smythe and the boy, Christy. The minister turned to Mrs. Smythe and said, the boy ought to be in our junior choir. The boy had never had any music lessons in his life, and she looked at him and said, oh, Christ, he can sing? <laughs> The minister, the minister replied, well, damn it, he can learn. <laughs> but it is, it is a simple example of how we pretend. I'm reminded also of another time in Tokyo at the ambassador's reception where the military staffs attended an Air Force buddy of mine, pilot, was talking along with the other American officers and the Japanese officers of the last war, bemetalled and bedecked with all their finery, not a thread out of place, but where the alcohol moves freely, sometimes the exploits of the past war become heroic deeds, and they, the staffs, the Japanese and American staffs were recounting these to one another. One Japanese officer walked up to this Air Force buddy of mine, stuck out his hand and said, My name is Chow Main. I uh, was a kamikaze pilot. And my buddy looked at him and said, Well, I thought the kamikaze pilots were sworn to commit suicide by diving their explosive-loading planes into enemy targets. He said, Oh, yes, but I did not tell you my full name. My full name is Chicken Chow Mein. <laughs> about alcoholism. I was an older man, remember. I'd seen a lot of it in the service and out. I believe now that there is not too much difference in the alcoholic and the Al-Anon. I believe that the pressures on each of us as individuals are pretty much the same as we try to live our individual lives. It is perhaps just a little different with you because you quit drinking and then began to live a new life. 
a happy one. You've heard it described a thousand times. To us, we don't turn from alcohol or some other one blame. We have the same pressures and certainly the same ugliness as one of the speakers mentioned we could find our ways after we let go of the bottle <coughs> and now and then an alcoholic will refer to his family and the help that they receive from them and it was said, who can tell us when we have reached bottom better than we ourselves can realize that? The point I'm trying to make is who in this world can tell us obnoxious individuals that we too reach bottom and probably carry that on and live it? daily that type of life that type of attitude thinking in our self-righteousness that we are correct I can assure you that alcohol or that Al-Anon made it quite plain to me that alcohol destroys spiritually mentally and physically there are other poisons that destroy spiritually mentally and physically the poisons of resentment, of self-pity, and all the other character defects that we carry about with us but won't recognize until something, something opens a book. You praise the AA program and Bill. We praise Lois and those other alcoholic or mates of alcoholics in those early days who sat down and realized this way of life is applicable to anybody and we are anybody we are the rest of the world and for that the Al-Anon program exists and I hope that I can stay with it I hope I can retain it I hope I can work on it every day a day at a time as long as God lets me stay on earth thank you folks for letting us come up here I want to take up we went out, we had the privilege of going out to Jerry's uh, home last evening and meeting some of the people from Tulsa and meeting his wife. I would like to say <clears throat> that I have never met better, warmer hospitality any place than I have seen here in Tulsa. It is just wonderful, and I hope to come back again. The Brenton Fisherman's Prayer says, God, be good to me. The sea is so wide, and my boat is so small. I love conventions, and you do too, or you wouldn't be here. And Bob and I attend many. It gives us an opportunity to get a wider view of AA and Al-Anon and Alateen, a broader perspective. When we attend conventions, I, I realize that this is not just my little group and your little group. This is a whole world full of recovering alcoholics.
and this must be impressive to anyone. I'm happy and grateful to be here with you and happy to be able to share this program with you. At conventions, we have the opportunity to meet old friends, and there's a couple here from Arkansas that we have seen at three conventions, and we never see them any other time. Also, it gives us the opportunity to make new friends, <clears throat> and we have many of those. My name is Lou, and I'm an alcoholic, and so I'd like to talk to you about Al-Anon. <laughs> I often hear people say, I work my Al-Anon and I let Susie work her AA, and this sounds so separate and divided to me that I expect the next phrase to be, and we don't speak to each other. <laughs> Certainly I don't try to live the Al-Anon program for Bob and vice versa. From the very beginning, my family cooperated with me completely to try to help me maintain sobriety. For this I was and am grateful. But I think there are many things that can be said for Al-Anon and Alateen. My family's cooperation was a little bit like they're standing on the sidelines rooting for the team. And there's a difference between that and being in the game and being one of the players. It's a little bit like the trips that Bob and I take together often. When I'm driving, he does not try to drive for me, believe it or not. But he's sitting there beside me in case I need him. There's another reason for these three fellowships. During my active alcoholism, I lost communication with my family. I think most alcoholics do. I isolated myself. Al-Anon and Alateen helped to prevent the breakdown of communications. If the alcoholic is NAA, Al-Anon and Alateen helped to reestablish these broken communications. And there is one other thing I would like to say about Al-Anon. Since all of us use the same, same 12 steps of recovery, these steps are a program of growth, physical growth, em uh, not physical, me uh, emotional growth and spiritual growth. If you are not in Al-Anon or Alateen, there is a possibility that the alcoholic will grow right off and leave you standing there. I am very, very grateful for Al-Anon and Alateen. My alcoholism covered a few short years. Initially, I used alcohol as a crutch. I found that I could lose my shyness and my feelings of inadequacy and become one of the crowd and be accepted. I was no longer a wallflower. I was the life of the party, and so I used alcohol for this purpose. I used alcohol later for escape. Alcohol does so much for the alcoholic. I learned very quickly that I could depend upon alcohol for all sorts of things. Alcohol smooths the rough edges that I was too immature to cope with. 
I remember one time, and this I suppose was the first time I used alcohol for escape. Bob and I had a foolish little argument about whether or not the German houseman was stealing his socks. <laughs> now this, of course, is of earth-shattering importance. Any mature, normal person would have said, they're your socks if you want him to take them all and you want to go barefoot, that's fine with me. I was not mature. I was not sensible. I had all of these wonderful, wonderful little characteristics that contribute to alcoholism. Other people have them too, but I had the whole batch. I went upstairs. Oh, Bob sided with the houseman. Well, of course, this was, uh, it, it hurt my pride. It put me down in second position. It picked this uh, peak to this big fat ego. It did all kinds of things that I didn't like, so I was going to get away from it. I went upstairs and took a whole bottle of wine and drank it all down real fast and promptly went to the bathroom and threw it all up and went to bed and went to sleep. I had won that argument. <laughs> Who was it this morning? Last night, the speaker said, someone gets mad and gets drunk at you. This is what I was doing. This is what I was doing. I was showing other people. I was getting even with other people. Soon, and very rapidly, my servant became my master. I drank because I couldn't live with me because I drank. I could get away from people and places and things and circumstances temporarily. I could never, never get away from me. I was always there, drunk or sober. And I didn't like this. There was, there was no permanent answer. There was no real escape. This was an illusion with which I lived for a long time. I seemed to be one of those people who could not oxidize alcohol right from the very beginning. The first time I ever took a drink, I had trouble, and I heard the speaker say that this morning. I didn't develop this illness. It was there, and all it had to do was progress. I realized very early that there was something different about my drinking. Alcohol affected me differently. And I thought this was because I had grown up in a family of teetotalers and therefore was very ignorant of alcohol and its consumption and purposes and so on. But that if I practiced and worked at this thing, I would learn how. I practiced and I worked at it and I didn't learn how. I was very rapidly losing control of my drinking. When Bob came home and told me that we were going to move to beautiful, beautiful Greece, I said to myself, now things will be different. I never actually took a geographic cure, but I was sent on many, or dragged along on many. And every time it was going to be different. And it was different. It was worse. One Saturday night, because by now my drinking was completely uncontrollable, I asked Bob to lock up the little cabinet where the alcohol was kept. 
on the grounds that I was losing my mind. He readily agreed to lock up the cabinet. He readily agreed that he thought I was losing my mind. The next morning, Sunday morning, sick and craving a drink, I would not ask him to unlock that cabinet <clears throat> because then he would know beyond any shadow of a doubt that I was completely crazy. I decided I was, but I was kind of playing around <clears throat> with the idea so that he would not know it, you know, so that he would think this was my idea and he would say, oh, no, you're not really. But if I asked him to unlock the alcohol so I could have a drink, then he would know. I went into the kitchen where all the empty bottles were kept. We used to save all kinds of bottles and jars to sell to the old bottle man. I took out every single bottle that had contained any kind of alcohol and turned it upside down. Absolutely nothing. I had been through that ritual the Sunday morning before, and I had forgotten it. On some pretext... I got Bob to take our younger daughter away from the house. Now, I can't remember what I said to them, but I got them out of the house because I, I needed to have them away. And I walked down to the little square where the vegetable stands and the flower stalls were, and all of these little places sold beer and wine and wine and brandy and vermouth and so on. But it was illegal to sell it on Sunday morning. I persuaded my Greek friend to sell me two quarts of beer, and I put these in the bottom of a shopping bag, and then I told myself that I was doing this to keep him from getting in trouble. I covered these bottles with cabbages and carrots and celery and grapes and a lot of stuff that I didn't need. I was doing this so my Greek friend wouldn't get in trouble, and I went home. In my shakiness and my haste, to get the bottle, the first bottle open, I dropped it on a marble floor. You, you never saw a quart of liquid go farther. I was very busily mopping up the beer and the glass and all sorts of things, and I heard the car turn onto the gravel drive. So I very quickly grabbed a bottle of Clorox and poured it all over the kitchen floor. They walked in, and here I was at 11 o'clock Sunday morning, very innocently scrubbing a floor that didn't need to be scrubbed. This is the kind of insanity with which I lived. Bob once said to me, you aren't going anyplace. You aren't accomplishing anything. You are of no value to yourself, your family, to mankind. This was not a criticism. This was a simple statement of fact, as if he had said your slip is showing. You are of no value. And I knew that what he said was true, but I didn't know what to do about it. I wanted very, very much to be of value. He attempted several times to help me control my drinking. In those days, neither of us knew anything about alcoholism. It never occurred to either one of us to stop drinking, just to eliminate alcohol. Uh, it certainly didn't occur to me I was going to control it. 
And he said, if you can't handle this stuff, and it's pretty obvious to me that you can't, I will simply stop bringing it into the house. What a frightening thought to an alcoholic. And I said, oh, but you can't do that. And he said, I sure as hell can. I, I said, but you have to have it here to offer to friends when they drop by. And he said, oh, no, I don't. I said, well, what will you tell people if they drop by and you can't offer them a drink? He said, I'll tell them I can't keep it. My wife drinks it all up. <laughs> I spent so much time and effort trying to control my drinking, and I think the alcoholic who is aware of some sort of difficulty, I was not aware of alcoholism, but I was aware of trouble. I think the alcoholic who is aware of trouble is fighting for control. I knew that my life was unmanageable, and I was struggling for control, and I was going to control this thing with willpower. And all my life I had been a very willful person. I could do anything just by making up my mind, you know, hammer and tong, girl. I put a bottle on the kitchen table, and many of you have done this, and took a pencil and put a mark on it, and said, I won't drink beyond that mark. <laughs> and I walked into the bedroom, and you know, I couldn't make a bed, I couldn't hang clothes, I couldn't put away shoes, I couldn't do anything. That bottle on the kitchen table was an enormous magnet pulling my brain back into the kitchen. So I went back into the kitchen and erased that mark and put one farther down and poured a drink. <laughs> the whole day was spent making little marks on a bottle and erasing them and marking farther down. This is how worthwhile my existence was at that particular time. There's a small rocky hill in Athens Mars Hill, and it is there that the Apostle Paul first taught Christianity to the noble Greeks. Now that hill is used for sunrise Easter services. Our 16-year-old daughter had asked me to take her to that service. I promised. <clears throat> she got me up off the floor, off the living room floor, where I had spent the last part of Saturday night. And I used the usual, infallible, I thought, disguises. I wore dark glasses and I chewed gum. These, of course, would cover up my behavior of months before. We got to Mars Hill and it was before dawn, but we arrived and I sat apart from the other people, hoping that I would go unnoticed because I needed to be unnoticed at that particular time. I wasn't very noteworthy. However, everybody there knew what my drinking was like. It was no secret. I didn't hear what was said, and I could not participate in the service. But sitting on that rock, away from the others, all at once I remembered a little verse that I had seen beside a garden path many years before, and it went like this, let no one say, and say it to your shame, 
that all was beauty here before you came. And like a flood over me came the thought, you are treading on holy ground and you are unfit. And I had a deep feeling of defiling or degrading or destroying everything I <clears throat> excuse me, everything I touched. This was the feeling I had. A few days later, I reached the point that I think most of us have to reach. By reflecting on this for a little while, I realized that I was helpless, completely helpless, desperate, and absolutely without hope. <clears throat> I knelt beside the bed on a warm spring morning in that lovely country, sick and unsure of myself, and said, if there is a God, and I think there must be, please get me out of this hell. I cannot continue to live like this, and I am unable to die. Later that day, I drove into Athens, and some magazines had come in. We didn't get magazines over there very often, and they were sort of, um, the, we didn't have much selection. They were usually out of date. I bought a magazine just because it was there. It happened to be an issue of good housekeeping. And a few days later, I noticed that the feature article for that month was a letter to a woman alcoholic. That letter opened a big, wide door for me. It told me that I was not hopelessly insane, that I was not morally degenerate, that I had a fatal illness which could be arrested, that I was not alone, that there was hope for me. It told me about something called Alcoholics Anonymous, and that through this thing called Alcoholics Anonymous, men and women like me had learned to live a normal, happy, useful life. This was what I wanted. This was what I had been looking for, to be of value. I was so elated, <clears throat> I told my family that I would look up AA as soon as we got home. A few months later, we were home. And I didn't look up AA. My, uh, the, the very thought of trying to live without alcohol was intolerable to me. I was so completely depend dependent on it. I could not imagine a life without alcohol. I couldn't envision trying to live year after dreary year somewhere in the gray zone. This was my picture of living without alcohol. And again, I tried, I tried to learn how to drink. I tried to control my alcoholism. Thanksgiving approached and a neighbor of mine gave me a gallon jug of homemade whiskey to give, a homemade wine to give to our out-of-town friends. Once more, I didn't want to be drunk, and so I said a little prayer. 
I took the, the gallon of wine to the sink for the purpose of pouring it out. And I decided, well, now, before I pour this out, I'll just have one little cheese glass full. <laughs> that cheese glass convinced me that the wine was entirely too good to throw away. <laughs> the thing to do with it was put it away and keep it for our guests because that's, that was the initial purpose of it. But before I put it away, I was going to have one more little cheese glass full of that wine. Bob came home that evening and found me in a state of semi-consciousness. And I said something to him. I made some sort of request. Bob, uh, divorce me or put me away or get rid of me or do something. Do something. You do something. I knew there was an answer, but I wanted him to solve my problem. I wanted somebody else to take the responsibility for me. Looking down at me, and he used to look down at me an awful lot because I spent an awful lot of time <laughs> in a calm position. <laughs> he said, ever so softly, gently, I don't know what this is, and I don't seem to be able to help you, and you sure as hell can't help yourself. But before I stand by and watch you destroy the lives of two perfectly lovely daughters, I will abandon you to the buzzards. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, this is Mike T again on the mic. Uh, at this point, I had to turn my tapes over. I'd run to the end of the reel there, and uh, I incidentally... I lost a few words of Lou's fine talk. We'll continue now with Lou's talk. I said, my name is Lou, and I'm in Arlington, and I'm in trouble. And the woman said, this is the American Automobile Association. said, what kind of trouble are you in? And I said, I was trying to call Alcoholics Anonymous. And she said, if you can hold on, I think I can help you. And the next voice I heard was that of a woman. And she said, this is the Arlington County Police. What kind of trouble are you in? And again, I said, I was trying to call Alcoholics Anonymous. And she said, if you can hold on, I think I can help you. And the third voice I heard was a woman who said, My name is Gracie, and I'm an alcoholic. That morning I had said a prayer, a telephone call which I was unable to make for myself had been made for me. They just told me my time is up, so I'm going to have to... These are the things that I found when I came to AA. These are some of them. Our, the speaker just before me talked about the dividends. When I was able to attend my first meeting, I found warmth and friendship and understanding. I was immediately at home. And the dividends that have come to us 
since my coming to AA are numberless. They cannot be counted. But I made a trade when I came to this fellowship, and here are some of the things for which I traded. I traded sickness for health. I traded loneliness for friends, like you and everywhere else. I traded fear for faith. I traded guilt and shame for self-respect. I traded belief in a bottle for belief in God who is always here and who has never betrayed me. Thank you. Thank goodness that Bob and Lou studied the books and the pamphlets and got advice from friends to move close to us to be located up at Springfield and to be able to come here to this Al-Anon luncheon and give us a message, a most marvelous message. When you hear those three beeps, uh, that uh, indicates another program is to follow immediately. And I would suggest that you uh, set your timer on your machine at uh, th three zeros, and at the end of each speaker, write down on your box, back of your tape box what the numbers are. When the speaker gets through, you'll know how to then how to run down to the following speaker. However, this is just a four-hour tape at this speed. I sometimes I'm putting it on a, a thinner tape to 1800 foot tape. Well, it, it's nice to have that. It saves a lot of trouble. But you try this. It'll help. I think I shall put on Elsa Chamberlain now for your listening pleasure. I, I'm sure all of you know that Elsa is the wife of Chuck Chamberlain and also the mother of Richard Chamberlain who played in uh, Dr. Kildare so long on TV. I have both their permission to mention their full names on tape. Uh, Elsa made this talk at the Texas State Convention down in San Antonio, June the 10th, 1967. 